0: I want to welcome you all back. Those of you who were with us last night and those of you who are just joining us today, we feel that we have a great program for you today and one that uh, we want to take full advantage of. As you can see, we've, there is a certain sentimental, you know, some of the, At old haunt I think is one of our, uh, sort of, you know, someone who is, uh, is, is back with us on this 25th anniversary. I'm Alex Jones, uh, I'm director of the Shorenstein Center, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to this day and a half of, of conversations is the way we framed it. It is going to be thinking out loud as much as, uh, as anything, and it's going to be with your participation, we eagerly hope when we were deciding what kind of a format we wanted for the 25th, something very special, we wanted it to be really interesting, and we wanted it not to be something that would be pro forma at all. So we began with the idea of what is the best way to sort of elicit information and thoughts that are interesting and fresh and challenging, and that is the one-on-one conversation. I think that's sort of the journalistic golden, golden mean But you have to have the right people asking the questions, and they need to be asking the questions of people who are really worth listening to. So we began with a group of people that we invited to be effectively interviewers, to initiate the conversation, the one-on-one conversation, with then a group of people that we, with our interviewers, helped choose. Uh, And we went... great lengths and took great effort to pick a stellar group of both and I think you will agree that we succeeded in that. We wanted to lead off today with uh, Ken Aletta. Ken is an old friend of the Shorenstein Center. Um, Ken has interviewed I think 22,000 people in perhaps the last 24 hours, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) He is a superb journalist who has written many books. Uh, many of them focused on this new world of boring that has been a boring, and Ken has been tracking it for his Annals of Communication series at the New Yorker for a long time. Um, he is, uh, as I say, a friend of the Shorenstein Center and an exemplary journalist, and he will, uh, we, we will leave it to our interviewers. I will introduce the interviewers, but the interviewers will introduce their, their partners. Uh, they will speak f- together for about 30 minutes or so, and then we will open it to questions. As I think uh, I said last night, we are uh, streaming this live uh, when you ask questions if you would identify yourselves and things like that. It's, uh, it's pretty standard things in that respect, but we believe it will be anything but standard in terms of the content of the day. Uh, Ken Oletta and Vivek Kundra, please. Good morning.
1: So the gentleman sitting to my left uh, learned to speak Swahili before he learned English, which was actually a very good preparation for understanding the language of government. (laughs) So was a degree in psychology. Um, You also got a master's degree, Vivek Kundra, in information technology. And he set out to improve the way government performed and, and try to craft a common language so that people would understand what was going on in government. He did this first for Arlington County, Virginia, then as cabinet secretary for Governor Tim Kaine of Virginia, then as chief technology officer for the District of Columbia, and then as President Obama's chief information officer overseeing and monitoring Technology. The United States spends $80 billion a year on information technology, which is more than any government in the world. He also established something which is actually I had not known about before this, this week, uh, which was data.gov, which is an incredible resource of, of government data and much more efficient um, than, say, a Google search is for what, what is going on. He left the government this past August to come here, where he's a fellow at both the Berkman and Shorenstein Centers, and his task is to explore how the democratization of information impacts journalism. So let me begin our conversation by giving you a new job. I've now anointed you publisher of the Boston Globe. (laughs) Tough job, but someone's got to do it. You're losing money. How much, by the way? Gotcha. So tell us how you would use technology to improve the economic performance of your newspaper.
2: Well... First, I think uh, the key is going to be to look at um, sort of these emerging trends that we're seeing in a broader society in terms of how people are actually accessing information. My view is that a lot of companies, um, in the journalism space specifically, they're still so wedded to the old model of how things used to work when the world underneath them is fundamentally shifting. How people are accessing information um, through mobile devices the social grid in terms of how people are actually communicating and sharing stories, um, not just around the, their local jurisdictions, but uh, globally for that matter. And third is looking at the phenomena in terms of all the hyperlocal local content and information that's being generated. So in each of those areas, uh, I would try to figure out how do you innovate, almost look at it as a venture capitalist. So at the local, sort of hyperlocal level, really incentivize and create a whole new set of journalists who are going to be able to slice and dice and cube uh, information that's emerging from whether it's uh, government institutions, uh, from police departments to cover crime stories, uh, to breakthroughs that are happening uh, in terms of scientific discoveries with state institutions, and try to figure out how they actually build stories that are going to be evergreen, not just a point in time and then figure out how do you take those stories. Just
1: digress for a second. Explain what you mean by evergreen.
2: So right now, if you look at uh, most journalism, most stories you read, um, I've always wondered why they ever end, especially stories that are powered with data. So for example, if you look at schools, uh, everybody knows that in September, most parents are trying to figure out, you know, whether if they're moving, which school they're gonna send their children to, or if they're in the same region, um, how their school is performing. Yet what you notice is an inordinate amount of resources are spent doing the same thing over and over again. It's almost like directing the same movie, but starting all over again. What if you could take the data that's coming out of those schools, or for that matter, crime stories, data that's coming out of police departments, and say, you know what, in the same way that um, we've got these dashboards that allow us to monitor the performance of whether it's weather or the stock market. Why is the news treated the same way? Why can't we have these stories that are evergreen so we can actually monitor um, on a real-time basis uh, the performance um, of uh, content rather than trying to uh, throw more bodies at the problem? So there's a technology solution to some of these um, issues. and then. The key, I think, the winner in this space is going to be um, the set of organizations that are going to be able to take immense amounts of data that's being generated um, across the board and slice and dice and qubit and turn noise into signal. So think about all of us sitting here today and people watching. We're almost like sensors, right? We've got a camera, we've got our cell phone, we're tweeting, we're sharing our social experiences. But very few people are able to take that or organizations and actually turn it into meaningful insight. And those are going to be the winners. And if you think about it from a hierarchical perspective in terms of paradigm, at the very bottom of the paradigm, you've got vast amounts of data that turns into some key performance indicators that then turns into insight. And it's the insight, I think, that needs to be uh, looked at. And that's where I think news organizations can add tremendous value Uh, by bringing the narrative capabilities um, in terms of the content that's being generated.
1: And what about, how would you advise the globe to use social networks like Facebook and Twitter? How could they tap into them to make their business better?
2: Well, it's a great platform, if you think about it, to to amplify uh, good content, right? It's not, so, so I don't necessarily see that. Facebook somehow is fundamentally changing um, the, the social media, uh, the, the news business per se. But if you look at a lot of the stories that travel around, they're basically pointers to great content, right? So if you're able to generate great content, so the deeper question is well, how do you produce that amazing insight? So look at Twitter, look at Facebook, look at YouTube. They're essentially amplifying a lot of that. And if you look at these companies that have been created, why have they become these multi billion dollar companies? Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. What's amazing about all three of them is that they haven't created a single thing. They've relied on people to upload content. It's people like you and I who are uploading content on YouTube or Facebook or on Twitter. They haven't, they've built a platform. And the key is how do you leverage that platform to amplify your content, your your insights.
1: But but, uh, I have a problem uh, in that I'm a newspaper and, and, I'd, and I want to migrate to an online newspaper and charge for it as the New York Times, The Globe and others are starting to do, with some modest success uh, in some of them. Certainly the New York Times has had some success. And yet the problem is that I can't get advertisers to pay. They pay basically a tenth for the same ad online as they pay for that ad in a newspaper. So. How how do you pitch me as an advertiser that you're not paying enough? That online, the narratives you speak of and the data and the richness of that data, in fact, is so valuable that I should be paying more?
2: Well, so so let's look at the economics in terms of um, why are advertisers paying more for whether it's Google or Facebook, right? So the big battle in the tech industry right now, sort of Google versus Facebook, is who's going to get more eyeballs and what is a conversion rate um, when it comes to some of these ads. Uh, What's really, really interesting um, in terms of looking at the social grid is that uh, people are more likely to buy a product, so to speak, um, or believe a news story if it's coming from somebody they know versus if they just find it on a search engine. So the big dilemma for Google right now, and why Google is going aggressively after the whole Google Plus model in terms of the social side, is because they recognize that. So advertisers know that if there's an ad on Facebook, people are much more likely to buy a product than if they just see it on a Google search result. So in the same way when it comes to stories, um, it's figuring out how do you make sure that those stories become viral, right? And it all begins with, there's no substitute for great content. Uh, Because the the, the content that does become viral um, is content that that, that is great. And so how do you look at that economic model and say, well, so these platforms essentially are redirecting a lot of those stories. So it's not like when Facebook shares a story from the New Yorker. uh, It's just in Facebook. They click and they move on to the New Yorker. So it's sort of a chicken and egg type of question, which is how do you create really, really amazing content that then can be amplified.
1: So you've had almost two months here as a fellow, and you're studying democratization of information and how it might impact journalism. What are some early lessons you've found?
2: Well, so what I found, interestingly, is there's some amazing work happening all over the world. So for example, in France, um, there was a magazine, and uh, they are trying to figure out, well, how do they create uh, news stories and investigative journalism rather than hiring an army um, of people uh, in terms of thinking about uh, a problem around uh, water supply and uh, the disparity as far as cost. So what's happening is, is utilities were charging different prices, uh, even with houses that may be right next to each other. So they literally said, you know what, we're gonna crowdsource water bills. So they literally asked uh, people to submit uh, water bills and they were able to get in paper format thousands of water bills, and were able to see the disparity, put it online, uh, and generated a lot of traffic. They didn't go with the old world model, which was to just build an army of people that would go out there, uh, but they leveraged this crowdsourcing model. That's really, really interesting. Um, You're seeing what's happening in terms of human rights um, in um, in Africa. Um, A lot of villages where you don't necessarily have um, the web scale uh, efficiencies or even access for that matter, what's happening is a conversion from radio uh, to where people are actually sharing information at the local level around uh, human rights violations with people that are based in San Diego. So they're then converting that information to put it online and share it more broadly to hold those governments accountable. Uh, and we're seeing also, uh, from a hyperlocal perspective, in Arlington County, for example, um, where uh, I spend a lot of time we're seeing that people are actually uh, taking information that's coming out of whether it's government institutions or uh, even children in terms of creating journalism and sharing those stories and having it curated very much like the Wikipedia model.
1: I'm, I'm curious whether what impressions you've formed so far. There's a tr- There has been traditionally resistance in traditional media to citizen journalism, to two-way, the two-way and, and Newspapers and magazines are a letter to the editor. You're describing a world where it really is two-way. In, what is your impression about how traditional journalism, do they welcome that or are scared by it?
2: I, I think they're scared by it very much the same way that the government is very scared when it comes to creating a more open, transparent, and participatory democracy, which is that you're shifting power. Right? There's this view that the best thinking somehow is at the top and that somehow people have a monopoly on the best ideas. And the world is changing. If you're in the pursuit of truth, then you have to be able to triangulate that truth. And what better way than to say, you know, let's try to triangulate it as best as we can, recognizing and accepting the reality the way it is, uh, which is that you may not get the best data points, but you'll always be able to get um, uh, closer to the truth when multiple people are challenging it rather than a sort of high priest who comes out and says this is the truth and this is the version of the story.
1: But, but isn't the high priest, when, when you use the phrase curation, and I know it's important in, in, in the arguments you've made, that you need a curator. And, and that, high, that journalistic editor thinks of himself or herself as the high priest. Isn't there an inevitable conflict between curation and two-way, or oftentimes a conflict? Well,
2: not necessarily, because if you look at the model right now, it's um, asymmetrically tilted towards just the high priest, right? And uh, what I'm uh, suggesting is that I think there's a better model, which is that you absolutely need experts um, who can make sense out of all this data, what is noise versus what is real signal? Uh, and that's a hybrid model. Uh, at the same time, what you don't want is just bloggers out there uh, throwing out whatever and saying that that is journalism, right, because then you, you basically <coughs> race to the bottom from that perspective. But um, if you can power these stories also through data, right, uh, which in some cases may be irrefutable, but I also recognize that a story can be tilted one way or the other depending on what lens you put on, uh, but you improve the conversation. Because you always have the narrative side of the story and the quantitative side of the story. I think we need to, be much, we need to look at the quantitative side of it.
1: But, but in looking at the quantitative side of it, one of the, one of the issues, uh, our politics is so polarized today that it's very hard to agree on a common set of facts. Your assumption is that there is a common set of data. What if people don't accept the data as a common fact?
2: Well, I mean, that, that's a much deeper problem, I think, as a society where uh, everybody's sort of spinning um, what uh, true north is, what, what the real truth is. Uh, but, but I think there are a, a set of issues that lend themselves in some ways very well um, as far as facts are concerned. Uh, the, the deeper issue, and the reason I believe that you need to get more people involved, you need to crowdsource, you need to engage more people uh, as far as slicing and dicing and looking at, the, at those facts is because they will weigh in on both sides of the story.
1: So let's, let's switch and talk some about your experiences in, in government, particularly your last government tour, which was the Obama administration. When you look back uh, at what you accomplished, what are you proudest of?
2: Well, I'm proudest of a, a couple of things. One is that um, we made huge strides in uh, what I call the shift to power, right? Uh, the shift away from just uh, a few bureaucrats behind closed doors um, to the American people. Data.gov is an example of that. The notion that uh, we don't necessarily know all the answers. How do we engage the American people to solve some of the toughest problems we face as a nation? Second is... Uh, Give us an example of that. So, for example, if you look at um, healthcare, um, one of the things we did is we decided to release data around Medicare, Medicaid um, information. Um, and so now, all of a sudden, at the national level, you can actually see you know, cost of knee surgeries um, and begin to compare a lot of that in terms of how the government is paying for that. You can see outcomes as far as hospitals. And we also issued challenges and prizes for third-party developers to create applications. Somebody created an app, application that actually allows you to see, before you check into a hospital, what the mortality rate is in that hospital, how nurses are rated, um, what the outcomes are of certain procedures. Um, Another person created an application that looked at data from the Consumer Protection Safety Commission and an app that allows an expecting mother to scan a crib to see whether that product has been recalled or not. Uh, We also uh, started shining light on um, government spending. So if you look at uh, recovery.gov, it had the lowest rate fraud of any program that size, actually lower rate of fraud than even credit card transactions. And a big part of it was because the American people could drill down to their zip code, their address, and see where the money was going, who got the awards. And it also allowed uh, government to actually go after uh, people who were committing fraud when it came to government spending.
1: Describe how it also allowed you to announce to the public who who the decision makers were. Describe what you did there.
2: So with recovery.gov, we we basically put out there in terms of who was making the awards, um, what that process was, and uh, also the ability to track that information on a real-time basis. So it brought a lot of light to a process that was secretive and opaque in the past. All of a sudden you could see down the street, you know, uh, which company won this contract? How much did they win it for? When was this project supposed to be done? And if it wasn't done, why was this project continuing? So we could make sure that we were not throwing good money after bad money um, as far as t- uh, taxpayer expenditures are concerned.
1: How, what was, I mean, after the two plus years you spent in Washington, what was your biggest frustration? What couldn't you do that you wanted to do and why?
2: Well, I think uh, when it comes to technology spending, for example, so the the federal government uh, spends about uh, $80 billion uh, a year, and um, one of the biggest problems um, in technology is that, uh, unfortunately, it uh, is allocated um, as part of the appropriations process bureau by bureau, department by department. What that leads to is immense duplication across the federal government. So, for example, over the last decade, we went from 432 data centers to over 2,000 data centers. Um, And um, what I would have loved to see is a single committee on technology in Congress where we were able to build essentially a center for information technology so that we weren't uh, spending money in a very, very duplicative fashion. So from an um, executive branch perspective, what we did do is we started shutting down these data centers but I think it's going to take an act of Congress to really go down there and say, you know what, we basically need three digital Fort Knoxes. We don't need 2,000 data centers with uh, interest in every congressional district in terms of building them there.
1: But, but Congress, uh, like the president, says they want to cut costs. What, what impedes their ability to do that?
2: I, I think there's a lot of interest in terms of these data centers or in specific districts. Um, And uh, these data centers, frankly, you know, uh, preserve sort of the status quo in terms of government contracts. So I intend to be very active um, from uh, this perspective to be able to engage with Congress continually to make sure that uh, we're we're making the right set of decisions as we think about technology in the next 10, 15, 20 years.
1: But one of the things you talked about, and you just mentioned a moment ago, was was moving, shifting more to the cloud, which means some uh, corporate servers or some... So it's not a government expense, and it's stored. But there, you met some resistance as you pushed that from, say, Defense Department, State mm-hmm. Department. Describe that conflict.
2: Well, so let me tell you why it's so important, to shift to the cloud, um, in, in terms of technology. So when you look at that expenditure, I still remember my first day on the job when I walked into the White House. Um, I was literally handed a huge stack of PDF documents. Everybody said, congratulations. Now, here are... billion worth of technology projects that are behind schedule and way over budget. And I looked at that uh, and this is sort of a lesson also uh, for for media companies in a way. And I said, well, wait a second, there's no way a single individual is going to be able to turn around uh, the ship. So as I was sitting before Senator Carper testifying on uh, the technology agenda I said, you know what, Senator, I'm actually going to launch an IT dashboard And we're going to shine light on the $80 billion of spending. And I literally took the picture of every CIO in the US government, put it right next to the IT projects that they were responsible for, and the contracting company that was working on those projects, and showed publicly how they're performing on cost, schedule, and their performance outcomes. Immediately what happened as we did that is that the Veterans Administration, they halted 45 IT projects. Then we took a picture with the president looking at the IT dashboard. And a number of CIOs came to me and said, for the first time, my Cabinet Secretary asked to meet with me. I've never met with my Cabinet Secretary over the last decade or so um, to explain why these projects are red. So the the notion of transparency um, drives performance in a huge way. But from there, then, we went to the next level. We started looking at these IT projects, really drilling deep in terms of what was going on. And in the case of the Department of Defense, for example, they'd spent ten years And $850 million on a uh, uh, personnel management system that failed. Whereas, if you look at startup companies, if a startup company were to go before the venture capitalists and say, you know what, give me six months and $2 million because I need to build my own email system or a payroll system, um, you'd get laughed out of the room, right? And so, from a technology perspective, what I was pushing as far as the cloud-first policy is concerned is to treat technology like a utility, very much like electricity or water, to be able to say, well, why is the government building all this redundant infrastructure? Those 2,000 plus data centers, the average utilization in terms of processing power was under 27 percent. Average utilization for storage was under 40 percent, and we're spending over $20 billion a year on that. So the shift enabled us to save a lot of money. On something as simple as email, as we move to the cloud, we're able to save $45 million. Um, and uh, as we look at the future, uh, that is where most you know, companies are headed. And that is where the government needs to focus on closing the technology gap.
1: Is there a security issue, though, Well, so that?
2: There, there are security concerns. Um, uh, but, but I think a lot of those concerns are overhyped. Um, And the reason they're overhyped is because the government already, if you think about uh, the 12,000-plus major systems, over 4,700 are already in the hands of third parties. It's not like the government is operating them. If you look at the government's telco network, the government doesn't own its own phone network, um, except when it comes to military communications. So there's a case to be made uh, in terms of what is the business need. If you're talking about national security, absolutely. The government must operate those systems. But when you're talking about HHS, for example, uh, it doesn't make as much sense.
1: But uh, segue naturally from that to the question of cybersecurity and cyber threats. If you were a government that was alien to the United States and wanted to create havoc or harm, what would you attack?
2: Uh, the critical infrastructure, right? And and that is one of the reasons the Obama administration, one of the first things the president did is he ordered a top-down review of cybersecurity, and that is one of the reasons we created a cyber command um, that is led by a four-star general, General Keith Alexander, because we recognize that the world we live in, countries are building massive offensive capabilities. and part of it is to come after obviously our command and control infrastructure from a military perspective, but also the critical infrastructure that powers the economy, right? From our transportation infrastructure to the financial systems, uh, to what's happening with the, the healthcare uh, and smart grid and so forth. So it is critical that we hardwire security as we move more and more of these processes to the digital world. But um, you know, when we talk about cybersecurity, it's definitely an arms race. Um, and it's not just nation states, but you also have organized crime uh, that's uh, building massive capabilities. And that is part of the challenge, right? As we enter this new era, as uh, more and more uh, business processes and our identities move to the digital world, it is the question of our time.
1: You've talked about the many virtues of, of um, IT and, and many of the interesting and, and progressive things you did in your government service. What are the vices that you worry about?
2: There are always two faces um, to technology. Um, and in terms of the dark side of technology, um, we have to fundamentally rethink You know that we, we don't end up with a model where privacy is dead, right, to the detriment of people. The same technologies that are enabling um, many of us to connect with people around the world Um, to be able to share our entire lives can also be used and target people. So you're seeing that whether it's, you know, the Arab Spring um, in terms of how people are being systematically targeted or you're seeing how companies unilaterally start making decisions around the data that we share. We have certain assumptions around how um, that that information is going to be used. But uh, in the interest of monetizing it, um, are the, the notion of privacy is being thrown out the door. And I think that is the, the seminal issue. I actually think privacy issues are far more serious than the cybersecurity issues.
1: Before we come out to you for questions, let me ask you one final question. The presidential campaign this year, we saw that Mr. Obama, when he ran, was the first Facebook, Twitter president. Uh, and we saw how he harnessed the web to, to do, to really do things that hadn't been done before, like raising money. Where do you see, the ch- do you see anything, a quantum leap this year in the campaign so far about how the web <laughs> is being used by these candidates?
2: So here's, here's how I look at uh, what's happening with the web and sort of the natural progression, right? So if you think about the Agora, um, people used to come to the Agora to petition their government, to engage in commerce, um, and uh, they would come there to socialize. In the same way, now, given what's happening with the ubiquity of uh, broadband, given what's happening with access to technology, both through mobile devices um, and desktops, for the first time, every American is going to have the capability of having a front row, not just a seat, but the, the ability to participate. Because we're able to do things we just couldn't do structurally before. So that, what does this mean for campaigns? I think uh, fundamentally what you're going to see is a huge shift in terms of the social growth. Because if you remember, Facebook uh, now has over 750 million people. 800. Right, so, so now you, know, you go back to the campaign, they're nowhere near that last time. Um, you look at the rise of Twitter, you look at YouTube, uh, all these tools, every campaign um, is treating them as a strategic asset. Right? They're using it, so that's not even a question anymore. Um, the big thing, I think, is going to be the velocity at which information flows, right? In the same way early campaigns um, had built out these war rooms, you're going to begin to see these digital war rooms uh, that are going to be much more algorithmic-driven. The ability to be able to slice that data as fast as you can and have algorithmic responses to a lot of that data. So I think that's the next big of innovation that you're going to see in campaigns, which is the power of algorithms um, and how to sort of, Respond so. I think where it's moving is what we have. To, it, it, the best way to think about it is to look at what's happening in the financial markets, which is a high-frequency trading. Is exactly what's going to happen in campaigns now.
1: Let's make this two-way. Questions. Please step and identify yourself, if you would. Yes.
3: Hi, I'm Susan Crawford. I'll be a visiting professor at Shorenstein and also at the law school starting next term, and I was lucky enough to work with Vivek in the White House. I'd like to knit together a couple of narratives here. One is we talked about the importance of voice and narrative in journalism, and so that it be more data-driven and able to use data. Let's apply that to leadership, government. So what did you learn about leadership when you came to take on those fractious CIOs and the $80 billion budget? and how that can be enabled or facilitated by technology. See if we can tie these two stories together. Uh,
2: Well, I actually learned a lot um, about leadership, and I was very fortunate um, in life to have the opportunity to serve at the county level, state level, city level, and then at the federal level. The only thing that changed was actually the number of zeros uh, that I was managing. Um, But but what you realize, I, I think, is that there's this notion of government. Um, somehow that uh, it isn't working, it's uh, broken in a a big way, right? So I definitely see that at the political level. Uh, But when you look at the career, um, public servants on a day-to-day basis are out there on the front lines. They deeply care about the work they're doing. So one of the things I did is actually I purposely decided not to spend a lot of time with the political appointees. So to drive change, I went and I dealt directly um, with uh, the career public servants because I knew that on a long-term basis, that they're the ones who are gonna drive uh, change uh, on an ongoing basis. So it was important to sustain that. Um, And also, I think it really, really helps uh, to be naive. Um, And what I mean by being naive is uh, that, that story I shared about building out that dashboard in 60 days when I was testifying, I could hear gasps behind, uh, from my team, they were like, nothing in government gets done in 60 days. Uh, so I literally spent from 7 p.m. till midnight for the next 60 days working with a team of developers and career public servants, and we were all in, and we actually were able to execute. So there, there are a lot of assumptions. People just assume too much in terms of the status quo, and therefore they act. And when they act, they're always acting sort of in, in a negative way, uh, because they come with all this baggage around the, how government is rather than how it should be.
3: Yeah. Uh, I'm Dick Toefel, I'm the general manager of ProPublica, and we're trying to do a lot of the kinds of journalism that you were talking about, about data. and And I have to report to you that our experience with this government is not as happy as you would let on. Um, the president has talked about openness in government in a very different way than his predecessors you have the attorney general has and you've published a lot more data that the government wants published but what my reporters find um, in dialysis with hhs in formaldehyde with uh... epa uh... in loan modifications uh... with treasury in a project i can't name right now because it's ongoing with the department of justice but across the government the attitude is about things that people want to know that the government is not interested in affirmatively communicating about is it's the same old stonewall that there has been frankly no change in the attitude of the government about releasing information upon request and even information that we believe the law requires can you explain uh, do you share that frustration do you feel like there's a disconnect between the administration's philosophy about transparency and the way the government is actually performing uh, particularly with respect to programs that you might not that the political people in government might not want to talk about like for instance the loan modification program that i think everybody agrees has been a failure
2: sure so so i would definitely agree with you in terms of the attitude um, across the board right and it is such a big shift if you think about uh, uh... opening up the operations of government. Uh, In the space of technology, right, when I was about to put out all the the performance indicators, I had to go through so many lawyers um, and I just, and I think the the reason we were successful is we just moved too fast, right, um, in terms of just putting all that information out there. I think the big challenge where you can be helpful and uh, people outside the government can be really, really helpful, is in helping prioritize what is sort of number one, two, three, four, five. So, from the White House perspective, one of the things that the President did on his first full day in office, he issued his, this policy directive around opening up government, followed with an uh, uh, open government directive that um, moved the agencies to be much more transparent and participatory. Now, the challenge we ran into, and I sat in countless meetings um, with people outside government, is that given sort of the, the resources and the focus. So you would go to an agency and you would get, for example, HHS. Um, what does success look like? There's 25 different versions of what success really looked like. So naturally, what the agency would want to do is go after what they thought they could deliver on or the lowest hanging fruit. And I think what would be key is to create sort of a prioritized list of what is the data that is really, really important, that needs to be out there, and just kind of continually hammer that. Uh, because it's very, very difficult in any institution to get people to give away power. And I think it's going to take that consistent chipping away. Um, and no one expected this to happen, obviously, within a month or two months. Right? The president led. He started with releasing the Secret Service logs of every visitor that came to the White House. Uh, we started releasing a lot of the performance data. Um, uh, we, we focus on uh, getting rid of the FOIA backlog, but this there isn't an end. This is a continual process.
1: Let's get another question.
4: Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm a ninth Fellow from China. I'm a science journalist from China. Yeah. I have two related questions. So the first one is this digitalized uh, – there's more and more information from the public uh, – from the government, from the uh, related agencies. but. Giving more information does not mean transparency. You need to make sure the public rightly use it. You, you need to make sure public access it. You need to make sure that the public can use it to utilize it. So what's a mechanism uh, from the, uh, do you think that can help the government better use the more and more of information? Uh, the, the second related question is, with uh, uh, more and more digital media, particularly with social media, uh, public are uh, more easily to express their opinions. But uh, in the digital world, the situation is the people who uh, speak louder than others does not mean this opinion is more general. So in the digital world, how do you think you can identify the most representative public opinion so that uh, mm-hmm. you can make a solution? Yes, thank you.
2: Sure. So I, I think on the data, I, I think it's a question of uh, sort, sort of a philosophical approach to how you think about it, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'll give you sort of the internal struggle um, that I went through um, when, when I looked at the, the, the way we we're going to go forward with the data.gov. There are two decision points, and sort of ties to the earlier question. Yeah, yeah. One was, should the government um, release this data, uh, or should the government actually try to build applications, as you're suggesting, to make it really, really easy for people to to, to use? Uh, I actually thought that was a wrong approach, in terms of the government trying to build all these applications to make it easy for people to use, because I believe that long term, the institutions were going to put their best foot forward. Right? So they're going to try to massage that data and try to present it in, in the light that makes the government look really, really good. So what I decided to, to do was to say, look, we should release the data in the raw format. Right? That should be the principle. Uh, so the reason we wanted to release it in the raw format was because my view was that journalists um, would take that data and actually curate it. Citizens would take that data and curate it. Companies would take that data and build the next generation of multi-billion dollar um, companies. I mean, just think about the the GPS data, for example, right, that uh, the Department of Defense released. It gave birth to the entire GPS industry. Or the genomics data that uh, HHS released, uh, or NIH released with other world bodies, gave birth to the the whole movement around personalized medicine. So I'm still a big believer that when you think of data, it's much better for the government to be a grocery store than to try to build a bunch of restaurants.
1: Uh, Let let me just follow up one second. So WikiLeaks is the ultimate transparency. Do you support that?
2: Well, no. I I don't think so. Because uh, in in the case of WikiLeaks, unfortunately, that was – those were secrets that the government had that were essential to dealing with other uh, nation states. And that was classified information um, that has had um, harmful consequences when it comes to U.S. interests.
5: Uh, good morning. Uh, I'm Rory O'Connor. I was a fellow here three years ago looking at the, some of the filtering of information issues you referred to. And I heard you, you talked about curation and you talked about the role of social networks. I wonder if you could comment briefly on, on two other filters that I hear a lot about. Uh, One is uh, the algorithmic solution of learning machines, the recommender systems. And the second is brands themselves. Uh, Eric Google is on record uh, as saying that the the Internet is a cesspool of misinformation and that brands are the solution. So I wonder if you could comment uh, on both brands and on uh, recommender systems. Are they going to help us separate the signal from noise?
2: Um, I I think so. I mean, if you go back to early human civilization, right, um, and actually even if you go back to, you you look at how people used to to think about the world, it was very much sort of a one-to-one correlation, um, which was a lion equals danger, right, um, or fire equals danger, right? And and I think the human mind began sort of abstracting at a higher level um, and uh, started conceptualizing, um, uh, things that allowed us to go through, it, to develop breakthroughs. Now I think what, what's happening is what machines are gonna be able to do um, in ways that the human mind just can't do is they're gonna be able to take this vast amount of data that, that's out there. And by the way, we're probably at .00001% of what's about to happen um, in the next you know, five years even. Right? Think about the entire world and how it's going to be instrumented. And uh, where we already are with sensors around our health systems and transportation systems and financial systems and even our own lives in terms of how we're living on a day-to-day basis. So where machines can be really, really helpful and algorithms is in terms of um, allowing us to slice and cube that information. But it's, it's going to require the human mind, conceptually, to provide those insights. Um, But as as far as misinformation is concerned, uh, I I think that's a very subjective um, uh, set of uh, views in terms of what is information versus misinformation, right? That is why I'm a huge believer in trying to power as much of it with data as humanly possible.
6: George McCray, independent scholar. Uh, I'd like to push back a little bit on the idea of doing things in-house in government rather than buying them off the shelf. There's an example recently at the NSA of uh, an in-house, from what I understand, data mining program that was developed for a couple of million dollars that then a new NSA director came in and said, no, we need an outside contractor to do this, and they developed a program that was billions of dollars over budget and didn't do what the smaller program that was developed in house was and when people in the NSA started talking about that as whistleblowers they were actually indicted by the Obama administration from my understanding as being as releasing secret information and so what what can the government what should the government develop in house as opposed to buying off the shelf or buying from a vendor, because we have this example of something where the government was doing it cheaply, and it didn't happen.
2: Well, so I, I think so. I, I think you're misunderstanding my point there. Um, it sounds like in this case, that's actually a core mission of uh, what the NSA would be doing. So what I'm suggesting is, when it comes to commodity technology, right? It makes no sense. So what you don't want is obviously you're not going to have the FAA uh, basically say someone else go uh, take care of the next generation air traffic control system. Because that's core to what the FAA does. But the FAA doesn't need to be in the business of uh, uh, building out email systems. So what I'm suggesting is where you have commodity IT that adds no competitive advantage uh, in terms of what the government would, bear, uh, would bring to the table, um, why are we wasting billions of dollars? But when it comes to mission IT, absolutely. You know, you look at whether it's DARPA, you look at NSA, you look at um, uh, uh, NIH. You know, you actually want NIH, for example, engaged in uh, the Human Genome Project. Thank Let's
1: you try for clarifying. get clarify. a few more
7: questions. Yes. Uh, Jim Snyder, former fellow here at the Shorenstein Center, currently a fellow at the uh, Software Center for Ethics. Uh, my question picks up on a question uh, or a statement that the made earlier in the conversation about the economics of local advertising online and how uneconomical unec- it is. And the question is, uh, there was an assumption there, that um, the way I heard it, uh, uh, that the, the economics of local advertising were, in, uh, were um, exogenous rather than endogenous to government policy. In other words, it's technology in the private sector that turns the economics of essentially local news rather than government policy, but what we know about um, the economic viability of local ads is the ability to do behavioral targeting to track the behavior of individuals over many databases largely determines the viability and there the government is very involved through privacy policy, the ability to, to track so it is, so the two questions are one is this really a big factor driving the, the economics? of local advertising. For example, Google has been browbeaten into not sharing the behavioral information across all the services that provide, from Google search to Gmail and all these things. i have got all these firewalls that the government insisted, and that has dramatically harmed the economics of local media, I would say, in the United States, maybe for a good reason. And then the second one is if you do believe that's a significant driver, public policy, driving the economics, why is it that the Shorenstein Center and the whole media policy, there's an infinite number of these privacy policy events, they just don't see it as one of their issues is critical to the future viability of, of online news. Yeah.
2: So I, I think that's why I said the seminal issue of our times right now is definitely privacy, right? Uh, uh, and if you actually look at government operations, One of the reasons there's such inefficiency when you go online and you're interacting with whether it's uh, the Social Security Administration or the Department of Education or IRS (coughs) is because in government there are very, very stringent rules in terms of how data can even be shared. So it impedes, actually, uh, the ability for the government to provide you an experience as rich as what uh, an Amazon or Google would provide you. So from a privacy perspective, I think it's going to hinge on that. There's a huge debate. I wish I had an answer for you, but but I think that is the big issue that we need to explore right now, which is to try to figure out, well, what happens as Congress and the FTC are trying to figure out what they do? Because it could wipe out entire business models, um, depending on which way uh, the the policy instrument is... uh, Just in one
7: sense, you're saying you do believe that government policy is potentially a critical factor determining the viability. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, well, absolutely. Yeah. In, the, okay. in the
2: future of all these business models. Next question. Hi.
5: Uh, I'm Marvin Kalb. I'm a, a sort of a writer now. Um, I have a, a suggestion and a question. The suggestion is you have used a lot of terminology um, that I am not familiar with and probably everyone else is, but I am not. So my suggestion is that you have a glossary of terminology to involve more Americans in what it is that you're talking about. My my question has to do with the international side of this. You use terminology in describing threats from abroad in very military terms. And I assume you, you did that deliberately. So I'm asking you, which nation in the world today represents the greatest cyber threat to the United States?
2: Well, I'm not sure if I can comment uh, on a particular nation. What I can say is that – Wait, wait. Um, We believe
1: in transparency here. Yeah. No,
2: well, this is uh, – so I still have my top secret clearances. <laughs> but no, in terms of – look, as far as nations are concerned, there isn't a single nation right now um, with an advanced military that's not building out um, aggressively uh, a cyber-offensive capability. Right. So what what you're but seeing what is does
5: that sentence mean that you just used.
2: So what they're actually building out capabilities um, in the same way traditional militaries, um, when you think about land warfare or sea warfare, would invest um, in whether it's submarines or ships or fighter jets. They're investing in weapons um, in the digital world to figure out how do you uh, cripple a country. Um, like the United States, whether it's the financial system, uh, do you actually – how do you attack it? How do you attack uh, the uh, digital – or sorry, the transportation infrastructure in terms of disabling the entire transportation grid? Um, and that is what a lot of these nations are building, and, and it's the future of warfare uh, it, which is going to be waged in uh, cyberspace.
1: Let's take one, one last question.
8: Uh, I'm Joe Nye. I teach here at the Kennedy School. Uh, I want to press you a little further on security, which you send, seem to downgrade somewhat. In uh, early in the administration, President Obama commissioned Melissa Hathaway to do a hundred-day study. On May, early May, he, President Obama declared this an absolute priority. Now, three years into the administration, there is no strategy for security there's a bit of a strategy for dot mil which is about ten percent of the internet there's virtually no strategy for gov and there is no strategy for dot com which is where the critical infrastructure is located do you regard that as a failure of the administration and of the chief information officer
2: well, first, I would totally disagree with you uh, on everything you've said, uh, because... <laughs> and, the, and the reason is, if you, if you look at... Uh, I can get you pres-
8: sources that will <laughs> back me up. Great,
2: right. great. We can have a healthy debate on it, but, but I think if you look at uh, what the President did in terms of putting Howard Schmidt in place as a cybersecurity coordinator in the White House, if you look at the model legislation that's before Congress, uh, for the first time, any administration has put forward a comprehensive model legislation that is before Congress that actually looks at the patchwork of the 47 different laws when it comes to privacy. If you look at the Cyber Command side on the military front, and even on the civilian side, on the.gov side, uh, there are tremendous changes that have already happened. Just, just to give you one example. Uh, the State Department, historically, had spent 138 million dollars and um, six years on basically studying its security problems. And literally, they would issue these reports year after year and file them away in the secure uh, cabinets throughout Washington that were probably much more secure than the very systems they were supposed to protect. And uh, what ha- what's happened in the Obama administration? Well, the administration actually put in place red teams, uh, recognizing that the way you go after security is not some loser report that some consultant is going to write, but you actually attack your own systems, find the vulnerabilities, and continually patch them. That's what's happening in the gov space. But I would encourage you to look at the legislation, because it's going to require massive changes um, uh, across the board, whether it's in the military side, civilian side, and even within the private sector. Um, As I've said, in terms of critical infrastructure, a lot of the critical infrastructure is not in the government's hands. It's in the private sector.
8: Doesn't that make that part of a cybersecurity strategy? When I said we don't have a strategy for dot com, which is where the the critical infrastructure is located, if you don't have a strategy to protect it, you don't have a strategy. That's 80 percent of the Internet. Now, or let me summarize and say, you are telling me and answer to my question then, that we have a pretty good security strategy for cyber now?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, it, you should go read the legislation I that have. the administration proposed. And, and the other thing is that it depends on which way you're leaning, right? So there's, a, there's two world views right? One world view is people that would want to militarize the entire internet, which is crazy. So I reject that view. I reject it. Right? And and so that's what I mean. So there are a number of people who will say, well, you know, the government should be monitoring everything, the government should be uh, basically um, looking at everything the American people are doing, which is crazy. Right? So they have an extreme view of cyber. Um, And the other view is that the government will partner with the private sector. And we need to do so, but the government can't take 100% 100% responsibility for every single company that's out there. And I think that's where the balance is that's being debated right now in Congress.
1: Well, as the curator in chief, at least temporarily. <laughs> um, I want to thank you. It was a wonderful Thank you very discussion.
6: much. I